This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh, and this is This Podcast Will Kill You. Welcome, everyone, to the latest bonus episode in our mini-series of bonus content that we've been putting out over the past few months. If this is your first time tuning into one of these bonus episodes, I'll give a brief rundown of what I'm doing with them so you know what you're getting yourself into. In each of these bonus episodes, I'm following up our last week's regular season episode by interviewing an expert about some aspect of the topic that we covered last week, and getting to explore it in much more depth than we did in the regular episode. And also, I'm asking these experts about their careers, what they like about them, how to get started, and any advice they may have for people who are interested. I've had so much fun putting these episodes together so far, and I've learned an incredible amount about fascinating topics ranging from deadly rabbit viruses to how electricity actually works and beyond. I am super pumped for this week's episode because it combines two things that I didn't expect I would ever get to talk about at the same time, koalas and sexually transmitted infections. In last week's episode, Aaron and I covered chlamydia, specifically the different ways that different strains of the bacterium chlamydia trachomatis can cause disease in humans, diseases such as the classic chlamydia STI, the eye infection trachoma, and lymphogranuloma venerium. We discussed how these obligately intracellular pathogens complete their life cycle, how they cause the signs and symptoms they're associated with, the long history of their involvement as human pathogens, and where we stand today in terms of the global prevalence of these diseases. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, 
I'm going to recommend that you pause this, go listen to it, and then come back, because that episode will give you some good background on these bacteria in general that will probably help in terms of providing more context for this interview today. Okay, so what are we going to be talking about today? Even though we covered quite a bit of ground in our regular season chlamydia episode, more ground than we expected to cover, in many ways we only scratch the surface of chlamydia, because the world of these bacteria is much bigger than just what the human perspective shows. Chlamydia are found in all kinds of animals, from birds to free-living amoebae, from sheep to salmon, from cats to koalas, and across all continents. They're everywhere. And while some species of chlamydia or chlamydia-like organisms don't seem to have a very strong impact on their hosts, others absolutely do. For instance, Chlamydia pecorum, a species nearly ubiquitous in livestock around the world, has had devastating impacts on koala populations in Australia. And maybe you're familiar with this topic from headlines a few years back talking about One Direction and koalas and chlamydia. In any case, these population declines have generated a substantial amount of research into understanding how chlamydia is spreading among koalas and in creating tools that might be able to help us slow or stop transmission, with one of these tools being vaccines. From this research, we have learned an incredible amount about Chlamydia pecorum, and not just as it relates to koalas. While the koala-chlamydia relationship might be the one most likely to be splashed across headlines, Chlamydia pecorum can infect many animals, and several other chlamydia species can carry great importance for other wildlife, for domestic livestock, or as zoonotic pathogens of public health importance but we don't yet know quite as much about those host-pathogen relationships. So it seems like what we need is a complementary approach. Conducting more in-depth studies on koalas, chlamydia, and vaccines, while also performing more exploratory research on how chlamydia pecorum and other chlamydia species impact other wildlife and domestic livestock. In this bonus episode, I am beyond thrilled to talk with two scientists, Dr. Martina Yelochnik and Dr. Sam Phillips, both at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia, whose research aims to do exactly that. These two super cool chlamydiologists have been examining questions of chlamydia in Australia from these different but complementary angles, and I can't wait to hear what they have found. So let's get to it. We'll take a quick break here, and then I'll let them introduce themselves. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help. 
But watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Hi, I'm Martina Jalocnik, and I am veterinary chlamydian, veterinary molecular microbiologist uh, from University of the Sunshine Coast here in Queensland, Australia, and I work on veterinary chlamydia, livestock, birds, koalas, and all the other animals. I'm Sam Phillips, and I also work at the University of the Sunshine Coast uh, at the Centre of uh, Bioinnovation. Uh, I work with uh, Martina for the last five years, and I'm a molecular microbiologist working on the koala chlamydia vaccine, as well as uh, some other human uh, chlamydia projects as well. Well, wonderful. Thank you both so much for agreeing to chat with me today. I am very excited to talk so much more about chlamydia than I ever thought I ever would. So let's dive in. I was wondering if you could start off by telling me a bit about your educational journeys. Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist or was that something you discovered later on? So uh, I always wanted to be a scientist ever since I was in uh, high school in uh, Australia. Uh, I had an interesting journey moving through uh, a diploma in laboratory sciences to fine-tune my uh, laboratory techniques and then an undergraduate and honours degree. My honours degree was actually in uh, looking for vaccine targets in uh, chickens for a disease known as Campylobacter. From there, I actually worked in uh, diagnostics, diagnostic pathology and human pathology for seven years and then moved over into research where I uh, was a research assistant for five years working in human papillomavirus uh, vaccine um, analysis within Australia, uh, as well as some chlamydia projects, which got me interested in chlamydia and collaborating with my uh, eventual PhD supervisor, Peter Timms, and came, out, came up to the Sunshine Coast to work on the koala chlamydia vaccine for my PhD. And since then, I've continued working with Peter on the vaccine and now the uh, lead postdoc uh, research fellow running four different vaccine trials. Well, as you can see, I have a, a little bit of accent, so I'm actually not originally from Australia. I come from Belgrade, Serbia. Since I was young, I was influenced by my aunt, who was a doctor. So I always wanted to be a medical doctor. And I was just so fascinated when she was talking about disease and microbiology. So as such, I um, did medical high school in Belgrade and I studied uh, medical uni, but because uh, we moved like a family to Australia. So then I had to postpone a little bit my educational journey. So I wasn't a citizen and the universities were then a little bit expensive. So I had to wait until I become an Aussie, then take a loan and dived in back into the study. So I did um, 
undergrads uh, majoring in microbiology. So, yep, I always stay true to my micro. Uh, it was ride or die. Uh, and that uh, continued um, with honors and continued with PhD in uh, microbiology. And in honors is where I first heard about this pesky chlamydia. So everybody was talking koala chlamydia, koala chlamydia. But there was another host livestock. And I was thinking like, okay, well, you know, nobody's talking about livestock. I'll do it. Let's see what happens there. And uh, with same, so we are actually within the same group. We had the same supervisors. Um, and I'm kind of like that child that never wants to leave home. So then I stayed with my PhD in chlamydia and I got my fellowship again on chlamydia, but this time on a slightly different chlamydia. So we started looking at chlamydia in birds, some novel chlamydia that it's, you know, doesn't get much attention in Australia. Um, and I'm still here and I think we will see what future holds. But now we are also looking at chlamydia and other bugs because chlamydia, it's never there alone. Interesting. Wow. What amazing journeys. So I have another question for you before we dive into chlamydia talk. And that is advice. Do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in pursuing a career in STIs or wildlife disease or One Health? Anything you wish someone had told you at the beginning of your career? My journey into where I am now, I I learned a lot along the way and I made some mistakes and then I moved back into it. And I think don't be afraid for people wanting to get into, into research in general, but into SCIs and vaccines to start off in something which it could open the door to something you've never thought of before. I started out in HPV vaccine research, which is uh, it's already developed. And I thought, well, there can't be that much research. We're already giving it to people, but there's so much more you can learn. So don't uh, close your mind off to thinking that if something's already well known, don't, yeah, there's still lots more that we can learn. And the, yeah, SCIs, they, they have commonalities between the different species. And so there's different antibiotics treatment between say chlamydia and gonorrhea or mycoplasma is all basically the same antibiotics and they share different mechanisms. So don't think you just pigeonhole down to the one uh, organism. You can always move on. So my advice to young scientists is collaborate, collaborate a lot because you need those connections. We, we need to connect with our vets, with our GPs, with our researchers, researchers who work on a slightly different aspect of the host that you may do. Um, that is the only way that you could get the full picture. And then by collaborating, and, and I often say talking with way smarter people than me, I continuously learn a lot. And then I pick up something that I didn't thought of it. So so for me, big part of, uh, uh, of what I do, it's a whole plethora of uh, collaboration from vets, from the producers, because especially in livestock, they are the ones who are feeling the effects of this disease on the farm. So we need to go from the producer to the vet, to the diagnostic uh, laboratory team, to us in research, to all of our colleagues around the world. So I would say, collaborate early and collaborate with good people and with a good team. When the collaboration cannot be sustained, that's okay too. 
Both excellent pieces of advice. All right, now let's get into some chlamydia talk, specifically chlamydia pacorum. Who does this pathogen infect and how is it transmitted? Chlamydia pecorum, although globally it's probably known as the notorious koala pathogen, actually is not. I often say it's a livestock pathogen more than anything. So in fact, wide range of livestock, including cattle, sheep, goats, as well as wild ruminants, such as let's say reindeer, water buffaloes. And recently we also worked on studies when we detect chlamydia pecorum in birds. Um, How is it transmitted? We think that it's most likely fecal oral transmission, uh, but Um, It can also be from direct contact, uh, which Sam can explain, like when you have two koala fighting, you know, they can kind of touch each other and uh, maybe transmit or when the sheep or cattle is in the close contact, so they can transmit, let's say, ocular chlamydia pecorum infections, but most likely it's a fecal oral. And how is it different from chlamydia trachomatis? I mean, chlamydia trachomatis is a human-specific pathogen, right? But are there any overall big-picture differences between those two species? The differences between pecorum and trachomatis are that pecorum can infect a, a variety of different hosts. Uh, trachomatis is strictly a human pathogen. That doesn't We don't find it anywhere else. We can't even get it really to infect mice, whereas pecorum will infect yeah, as Martina mentioned, a range of different host species and uh, sites. Uh, as far as uh, disease and uh, infection routes, they're fairly similar. I mean, we know that trachomonas can infect ocular, gastrointestinal, urogenital uh, quite readily. Um, so that's fairly similar in the disease um, presentations are fairly similar. You do get the LGV strain, the lymphogranuloma venereal strains of chlamydia, which uh, slightly different to what we see in animals. Uh, although that could just be that we're missing a link there with animals, so more research. And the, the tissue tropisms are really interesting. We've tried many different studies with Pecorum to identify tropisms based on, uh, usually we look at a single gene, the uh, outer membrane protein, the, the gene responsible for that is OP-A, which we don't find with chlamydia Pecorum or other species of chlamydia, but with, with trichomatis, it's fairly stringent, we find that there's specific ocular types and specific urogenital types. These do get modelled when you start looking at the gastrointestinal infections, but yeah, traditionally you can have the ocular um, strains specifically, they cannot infect the urogenital tract. That's due to some specific gene uh, mutations that have occurred uh, throughout evolution of trachomatis. So yeah, there are the similarities, but then there's also some really distinct differences between the two. Where did Chlamydia pecorum come from? What are its natural hosts and how did it get into Australia? Erin, that's a $5 million question. I think we moved from $1 million. I'm going to go now into $5 million question. So up to you know, um, a while, we all hypothesized, oh, yes, you know, Chlamydia pecorum most likely came with uh, European colonization and with uh, bringing the livestock. Because here and there, you know, using molecular studies, we have these snippets of information which says, oh, you know, you have koala strain that they are genetically similar to livestock, thereby tantalizingly, we say, oh, yeah, that's the origin. But, but I was a believer, I was a believer, 
but then I converted the the wider the the event um and of course you know uh beyond gene typing schemes we we started looking at the whole genome sequences again that's still in infancy for pecorum and we are seeing very distinct lineages between koala strains and livestock strains so then that opens up, you know, new questions. It's kind of like a Pandora box. So you wonder, are we not sampling the intermediate lineage? Are we missing a host? Maybe. We don't know. You know, especially in Australia, we are kind of like a host centric. So it's either koala is a host or it's a livestock. But what about everything in between? So we know from our colleagues from Europe and uh, US that chlamydia can infect pigs, reindeer, chamois, ibex, birds, variety of birds. So honestly, Erin, we do not know. Um, it is very tantalizing to think that we had a, some that we do have or had some kind of a spillovers, but at the moment we really truly don't have solid information to answer that question. So we need to work harder, we need to sample wider, we need to sequence way more than we do now in order to answer such question. Amazing. So you know, as we've talked about, one of the species most impacted by Chlamydia pecorum is, of course, the adorable and charismatic koala. When did people first start noticing that koalas were becoming infected with this bacterium? As early as uh, um, European settlement in Australia, there's reports of uh, indications that the koalas were, were suffering from uh, chlamydial diseases uh, back then. Uh, this is all kind of based on uh, observations of disease presentation back in the wasn't a lot of diagnostic analysis specifically for wildlife back then. It gets a little bit confusing. I'm sure your listeners will know that the uh, chlamydia uh, nomenclature has changed over the years and it's not that long ago that we only discovered that there was more than just chlamydia cytosine and chlamydia trachomatis around. So the quorum has only been around for the, the last uh, 30 years with uh, identification. So yeah, it's difficult to say how long Pecorum has been infecting koalas, but yeah, as possibly for the, at least the last 200 years. What does an infection with Chlamydia Pecorum look like in koalas, and how fatal can it be? I'll start at the top. So in uh, ocular disease, uh, koalas get an uh, infection in their conjunctiva, and this creates uh, inflammation, which um, normally your conjunctiva is quite smooth, and uh, as it uh, goes over the eyelids, this uh, inflammation causes scarring of the eyelids. You get these like nodules and it eventually causes um, blindness in the koalas in their, in their eyes. In the urogenital tract, chlamydia can ascend the uh, urethra and can't go into the uh, bladder. This causes cystitis, which is inflammation of the bladder wall. And koalas can carry this for huge amounts of time. They Obviously, they don't have a local GP that they can go and get some antibiotics for, so they suffer uh, in silence with this disease, and it can end up, I've seen koalas with golf ball-sized necrotic masses in their bladders from uh, slothing off tissue just from the disease chronic infections. It can uh, ascend the, the ureters up to the kidneys, uh, causes lesions in the ureters, and then can cause nephritis in the kidneys. Uh, then we also have uh, reproductive disease as well. So there's been some recent reports showing that uh, male koalas can... Uh, 
have inflammation in the testes and uh, can affect fertility in males. And in females, we definitely know that there is reproductive tract infections. There are links to the development of reproductive cysts, which can in turn lead to uh, infertility. How fatal is it? Koalas coming into wildlife hospitals, it changes over the years depending on the breeding season or not. But on average, it's about 50% of koalas uh, die from this disease. It's a horrible disease for them. They like they come in with these severe ureter infections, and you can hear them like crying from the urine. They become incontinent uh, in severe cases. It stains their fur on their rump so much that they get these ure- extra urogenital abscesses from their constant wet staining of their uh, rump, and they can't sit down. And then yeah, it just becomes terrible. That's that sounds really horrible. And how is chlamydia transmitted among koalas? I mean, a lot of it is still sexual transmission, but there's also the fecal oil route. Uh, we believe that they do get infected when climbing trees. If there's a koala above them that, say, uh, urinates with chlamydia infection, that could be a spillover to um, ocular sites and things. Uh, we know that uh, some joeys do get uh, chlamydia infections from infected mothers, uh, not necessarily through... Uh, birthing there's quite a lot of antibacterial properties within the pouch because koalas obviously a marsupial but then once they become a joey and they live on the back they're crawling all over the mother's back and they can get infected that way yeah there's other speculations but uh, mostly it's through yeah fecal oral sexual and then yeah mother to joey and if a koala recovers from an infection with chlamydia can it become reinfected or is there any lasting immunity we have uh, some evidence to show that uh, infection doesn't give the koalas long-lasting immunity. They uh, can up to maybe a month or so. But we see, depending on the wildlife hospital and the population densities, you can have up to 80% of the koalas that have become infected will eventually come back with new infections. It does differ with the different populations as well. There are effective antibiotics that exist for chlamydia and chlamydia pecorum, but they aren't recommended necessarily for use with koalas. Can you talk about why that is? Koalas are a really interesting species. Their diet is based on uh, eucalyptus leaves, which are highly toxic. So the koalas have developed a unique uh, evolutionary trait where they have a cytochrome P450 gene, which detoxifies drugs and chemicals and koalas have a huge repeats in this region up to 16 repeats in this region which means they are really good at detoxifying chemicals and drugs and antibiotics so a lot of antibiotics that would be useful for chlamydia they need to be used at such high doses in koalas that it ends up being fatal for the koalas so it limits the number of antibiotics we can use the first line of defense for at least the last 10 to 15 years was chloramphenicol that had shady uh, efficacy uh, in uh, treatment. So it it does work, but only 60 to 70% of cases. But that was the only antibiotic that had been trialed and what we could use. So they were utilising that, but it also causes uh, gastrointestinal dysbiosis, doesn't work all the time. And when koalas have their, um, their gut flora stripped, they can't digest their leaves and they end up starving to death. So... Antibiotics are a terrible choice anyway, but they do help in some cases. Recently, there was a trial that um, showed that we can start using uh, doxycycline, 
which, as you can imagine, is a lot wider um, distribution that's used in humans. So access is no problem at all. Chlorophenicol isn't used in humans anymore, so nobody wants to make it anymore. So it's quite difficult to get hold of as well. Uh, antibiotics are great for their use in clearing, but they have a lot of side effects as well. So we like to think the vaccine is uh, your best bet. <laughs> What have been some of the population level impacts of Chlamydia pecorum on koalas so far? And can you also discuss any of the downstream effects that koala population losses have had on other members of the ecosystem? Population level impacts of koalas are due to chlamydia. It's not, can't just say that the population is being affected solely by chlamydia. These animals are affected by deforestation, uh, population encroachment onto their habitat. So as far as directly comparable to Chlamydia pecorum, it's a, it's a difficult question. But overall, koalas, some populations have been uh, completely, um, they're extinct. So we don't have this uh, populations in Queensland that have become extinct, local populations. And the koala populations in Queensland and southeast Queensland have decreased. They are been listed as endangered just recently. So they've been decreasing ever since. They were listed as threatened in 2018, and now they've been uh, further downgraded to uh, endangered. We're seeing this in New South Wales as well. There's a strong decline. This has been impacted by recent fires as well in 2020. So that's uh, almost sped the uh, decline of these populations. Uh, when you get further down into southern Australia, into Victoria and, New South, and South Australia, the populations aren't endangered. The disease presentation is a lot less. There's other factors. So there's a retrovirus, koala retrovirus that infects koalas, we believe has an impact on the chlamydia disease. Uh, so but we do see a, a shift of uh, disease prevalence increasing in a southerly direction. The ecosystem, that was a really interesting question I had to Go and school myself a little bit on this. But so koalas, uh, obviously, they uh, live in eucalypt forests. And not a lot of animals eat eucalyptus leaves. So koalas actually help to control the growth of these eucalyptus forests. They allow for uh, light to be able to come through to the forest floor to increase the biodiversity on the forest floor, which helps the forest floor um, organisms, so microorganisms, insects, even small uh, mammals. They also help to control. Um, bushfires surprisingly so as they um, keep the uh, growth eucalyptus growth under control it's less likely to have a lot of dry leaves and stuff lying around so they there's uh, less uh, tinder for our bushfires and their um, feces also helps with biodiversity when it rains it uh, increases the nutrients in the soils and increases all the organisms so uh, we always we always write grants saying we need to save the koalas because they're a huge tourism pool and that's the last species of the Fascolatidae family and we should do it for human benefit, but it actually has benefits to the ecosystem, which really gets downplayed, I think. I mean, we've been working, I've been working in koalas and five years and I've never heard about these. I've never heard people talk about this before. So it's, I thought it was a hairy question to start with, but it's uh, really interesting. I was <laughs> looking into it more. I'm actually going to go back and read some more about it. It's quite interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So for koalas, is there any individual or population level variation in resistance or susceptibility to chlamydia infection? 
So for chlamydia infection, it's similar to uh, trichromatids that we see in humans. So probably uh, we, we estimate about 80% of koalas that become infected don't actually develop the disease. So we don't know why that is, though. We do think that the koala retrovirus uh, has an effect on immune responses to chlamydia, uh, which then allows for uh, chronic infections and development of disease. The population level is difficult. The different populations have different uh, interactions. So in mountainous areas, there's some geographical barriers that stop spread of chlamydia into populations that you would assume that interact. Whereas on in areas where near the coastal areas where there's not huge geographical barriers, the koalas can interact between populations. So they're quite they can be territorial in their in their uh, population groups and don't have a lot of exchange between the two populations. So it's a complicated question, but we do know that yeah, once it gets in there and infects enough koalas, those populations decline and eventually they'll become extinct if we don't get in and do something, especially with this, the other pressures of increased bushfires, decreased forestation, flooding, uh, wild dogs. We had a population that was almost completely wiped out by a single domestic dog. And also, um, so Sam actually mentioned koala retrovirus, which is a huge viral infection, but Let's not forget that there is a koala herpes virus that the research is now starting to emerge to suggest that that virus contributes to decreased um, immunity or, you know, can that now exacerbate chlamydial infection? Maybe. And plus, there are other uh, bacteria also infecting koala. That's why I would say chlamydia, it's never there alone, exactly. And you never know whether that's antagonistic, whether that's synergistic, mutualistic. We, we honestly don't know. There is actually so much that, that we need to look in terms of the co-infections. Yeah, it's such a complicated story. And so what about chlamydia pecorum? Are there different strains across the landscape that are associated with disease severity or different host species? So Okay, so when we look at genetic diversity of chlamydia pecorum, so what we see, let's say, let's look at koala, koala strains. So koala strains are diverse. They are very genetically diverse, but closely related to each other. We have evidence that show that koala strains infecting koalas in the northern parts of Australia, like Queensland, New South Wales, are genetically distinct than those infecting koalas in SA, South Australia, or Vic, Victoria, where there is a bit of anecdotal evidence that there is a less disease. However, when we look at the genomes of either of these strains, all genomes contain the same virulence factors. They're highly synthetic, highly conserved. So I would then say that any strain would have a pathogenic potential. And any strain of this can cause any uh, level of disease. So now that we looked at koalas and we know that they are diverse, we look at livestock. Uh, so in livestock, actually, we see a bit of a more um, disease association. So we have this very interesting clonal lineage. So that that's my um flavor lineage of the month. Um, it's called sequence type 23, and it's associated with polyarthritis in sheep and cattle, 
sporadic bovine encephalomyelitis in cattle as well as fetal loss in both sheep and cattle. So these strains are highly clonal, genetically identical, minor differences. And we never see them in koalas. So that's a very good thing. So these guys, these sequence type 23, they are specifically contained to livestock at the moment, as best as to our knowledge and as best as to our, you know, breadth of sampling. Uh, so we do see a bit of a um, association with the disease severity and whole species. Uh, but within koala, we do see differences between strains infecting northern versus southern koalas. But honestly, I, I really don't think that we can say that any koala strains is less or more severe. In a nutshell, they all cause some level of, of clinical disease. Interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we get back, I want to shift our attention to some other chlamydia species of public health or veterinary interest. Welcome back, everyone. So far, we've mostly chatted about Chlamydia pecorum, and in our regular season episode, Chlamydia trachomatis. But these aren't the only two Chlamydia species of public health, veterinary, or wildlife importance. What are some other Chlamydia species that we should be paying closer attention to, and why? Besides Chlamydia pecorum, whether it's koala or livestock, I would say that a species that it's wildly researched and going par par with the, you know, Chlamydia pecorum, it's your good old Chlamydia cytosai. So Chlamydia cytosai, it's a avian pathogen traditionally, uh, and it has zoonotic potential. Quite easily can spill to humans and cause disease in humans, respiratory disease, which can be mild, which can be very severe, very severe pneumonia. And also, Chlamydia cytosai, I, I, I love that species. I think it's, I'm blown away by cytosai and its potential. It actually infects extremely wide range of hosts, birds, and there is more than 500 different species of birds, water birds, pigeons, cytosine birds, chickens, poultry, ducks, everything as well as livestock. You can easily find it in livestock. And we recently acquired tiny piece of evidence that chlamydia cytosy can also infect marsupials. So we did find it in kangaroos. Um, and of course, zoonotic potential and the human infections, uh, they, they are being constantly reported throughout Europe, USA, as well as in Australia. So in Australia, Cytacosa is notifiable disease. So the human cases, they are reportable and notifiable. So that's why um, Chlamydia cytosai, it's definitely a species that we need to be very much aware about. Um, and, you know, the hosts that are infected with cytosai, they mix with a koala, they mix with your livestock, 
they all mix with us humans. So when we go to the beach, all the lovely citasine birds, they sit with us, you know, they eat our crumbs, but there is always a um, danger of spillover. And very recently, well, not, not that recently, in past decade, we had a very interesting, what we call the Australian citasai horse story. So we had chlamydia citasai causing outbreak in thoroughbred horses and causing fetal fall loss. So as such, uh, there was a huge economic impact to the stud owners, but also we also had a novel zoonotic transmission where the veterinary practitioners or students unknowingly that there is a chlamydia, they handled placental material and became infected with chlamydia cytosai and developed pneumonia and or respiratory infection. With several of these chlamydia species, we've got wildlife, domestic livestock, and sometimes humans that can all be involved, which brings to mind, of course, One Health. Can you talk about why it is so important to consider these pathogens from a One Health perspective? Well, for example, I'll go back to the chlamydia cytosai in horses example, uh, because that, that example, I think, uh, really uh, through a spanner in the works and we were all like, wow, that, that's very unique. So to, to the best of my knowledge, chlamydia in horses is not very common in Europe, nor let's say in USA. So we really have unique one health story in Australia. So horses wildly interact with our wildlife birds, with our wildlife parrots. Parrots are infected with cytosine. We believe and we have evidence that spillover from bird to horse was the cause of equine infections. Then we have humans who both interact directly and or indirectly with birds and with horses. So us in research, we knew chlamydia, chlamydia cytosine, zoonotic potential, viral, uh, all the strains were clonal belonging to a known virulent lineage. But for example, the GPs, the general practitioners in human medicine, they may have not been fully aware how common is the potential for spillover. So that's why that One Health collaboration, it's very important. And literally every chlamydia should be considered as a One Health pathogen rather than, yep, it's, it's solely contained to human, like trachomatis, and or to koala. So it's very important that we broaden that collaboration, that we broaden our communication, because especially in Australia, wildlife, domesticated animals and humans, they are very interactive. They are not isolated systems. Next, I was wondering if we could talk about things like land use change and climate change and how these things are affecting the prevalence and distribution of chlamydia species. Kind of a big question, but what do we know so far? <laughs> I, can, I can comment on, uh, especially during droughts, uh, koalas, they get their, uh, all of their fluids they get from uh, eucalyptus leaves. Uh, in, during droughts, the trees don't hold as much water and the koalas don't get as much fluid. So they have to come down out of their trees and they find water from water holes or from uh, troughs that are from far farmers that have used, which are encroaching on their on eucalyptus forests. So there's an increase that interaction between your livestock uh, and koalas, which then droughts are pulling the koalas down out of the trees and they're 
moving around between them. So there's a high risk of uh, spillover for chlamydia species uh, between koalas, livestock, uh, even birds as well. Birds come down and eat the feed that's for the livestock, so then they're interacting more with koalas. So all of these yeah, climate change effects in being drought or even floods and things like that is segregating different populations. They, uh, they're all affecting the way that the animals are interacting and then as a One Health, there's potential for spillover and uh, cross-transmission of uh, different species is increased exponentially. And obviously, land use for humans is affecting koalas and devastating the populations. Yeah. The habitat loss, I think it's always the biggest problem because if you remove the natural habitat of your, of your wildlife, you know, they, they become stressed, they go search for food, they encroach the, the human residential areas where, as um, Sam pointed, there are dogs, there are, you know, domestic, for example, cats in Australia can cause devastation to the natural wildlife. So it is, I, I think it's a, such a complex area to have idea what is happening uh, with the land change, land use change, as well as climate change. What do you see as some of our biggest gaps in knowledge regarding other perhaps lesser known chlamydia or maybe just less talked about chlamydia across the landscape? And why is doing exploratory work investigating these host pathogen relationships? Why is that so important? Well, honestly, I think we really have a lot of knowledge gaps ahead of us. So as I said, like we are very centric in species and in host. And recently we did um, one of the bigger bird surveillance studies where we looked at the population of wildlife birds for uh, chlamydial species, for prevalence and diversity. And that is where we discovered that besides Cetaceae and Pecorum, we also have a this novel emerging avian chlamydia abortus strains in our crows. Then we also saw strains that they are described in uh, globally overseas in water birds, some novel species. So that is when we were like, okay, well, you know, there are more hosts, more species. So who is now the next spillover host? So we have a big uh, surveillance work that we genuinely need to do. And it's also interesting that in Australia in particular, besides sheep and cattle, eventually one goat here and there, we still haven't looked at chicken nor pigs, that they are also one of the primary hosts for chlamydial species. And I think even with our wildlife, and Sam would probably say that besides koalas, we still haven't looked at other marsupials in more depth. So koala shares habitat with other smaller marsupials like possum, bandicoot, potaroo, um, little wallabies, but we still haven't done any proper and in-depth surveillance for all these hosts. And it is, that is very important because um. If we not an emerging pathogenic or zoonotic species in this host, that is very important for control of this infection. So we, we still need to do exploratory and investigative work beyond our everyday research. It goes back to the other questions, the other answers as well. With, uh, we're pushing all of these animals into confined uh, environmental spaces where they're having to share 
populations are overlapping between uh, farmed animals and birds and koalas. And there's these increased risks, risks of spillover between different species. And currently we don't know what species are even there to identify if there is spillover. Some of these pathogens can have devastating effects. Uh, we look at, say, chlamydia abortus in uh, livestock and decimate farmed populations of sheep and if yeah we've already identified that there's changes in that species to be able to infect non-placental mammals so we can see chlamydia abortus avian strains of chlamydia abortus we still don't know how that happened and what effect it's having on the avian species and they i mean you know you get into migratory birds and you can get transmission across different continents and we just have no way of being able to identify if it, these things are happening and if they're having a significant effects on different areas we saw with coronavirus it's so easy for a pandemic to get out of control and then the spread is impossible to control and we were looking for these things some of these chlamydia species we're not even looking at so we we try on the podcast sometimes when we can to end on a hopeful note. We don't always get to do that. Uh, so, but in this one, I would like to try. So let's turn towards vaccines. For decades, people have been working on a vaccine for chlamydia. And success finally seems just around the corner with this new chlamydia pacorum vaccine that's currently in trials with koalas. Can you talk a bit about this vaccine, like what kind of vaccine it is and what have the trials shown us so far? Yeah, definitely. So as you mentioned, we've been working on the koala, the koala vaccine for 10, I think it's 15 years now. Uh, there's been many different, so I've got a half an hour presentation on this, so I'll try and keep it short. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the current vaccine that we use, which has come through uh, a lot of development, is a recombinant protein vaccine. This is using the major atom membrane protein of chlamydia pecorum. There's three chlamydia pecorum strains that are used in the vaccine. And we chose these strains because these are the strains that are widely spread throughout Australia. So we can use this vaccine in populations right across the country. The specific protein that we use is actually, it's not an easy protein to use. There's not a lot of trials uh, in other vaccines as well, in human, human trial vaccines. Uh, using this protein because it's quite difficult to isolate. Uh, it forms hydrophobic uh, regions, which makes it difficult to purify. So we've spent quite a lot of time working on being able to get this specific protein to a, a level that we can use utilise in vaccines. The reason we've done that is it's highly immunogenic. We believe, at least in trachomas, this protein is uh, definitive of different tropisms. It's quite an important protein and it's surface exposed, so... Most, it's more likely to attract a stronger immune response uh, during immunization. The other part to a vaccine uh, when you're using recombinant proteins is an adjuvant. We've trialed several different adjuvants, and the adjuvant we use is a three-part adjuvant, which we, we believe is really important in with our vaccine. So with koalas, we need to have a single-dose vaccine. We can't have double-dose boosters. Koalas don't come back for appointments when you tell them to. So we need to have a single dose vaccine. So we've chosen the, the adjuvant that we utilize allows us to have the single dose by forming particles within the vac uh, vaccine mix. So it forms these biodegradable particles to allow the vaccine to disseminate across the koala's body 
And then as these particles degrade, it exposes the antigens to the quality immune response. You get a systemic response, which is much longer lasting. We believe it's at least two years um, protection in these koalas. Remember, koalas only live in the wild between five and eight years and reproductive for between the ages of two and five, possibly. So we don't need to have a vaccine that lasts 80, you know, the, the extent of a human lifespan of 80 years. We only need five years. So we've tested this out for two years. We've got some anecdotal evidence to show that there is uh, protection from infection down to three years. And we're planning on doing a new trial, which will go out for four years. And we believe this is all down to the adjuvant that we've chosen. Uh, we get a great immune response due to the antigen, but uh, a systemic response that's long-lasting, we believe is due to the adjuvant that we utilize. In general, what are some of the biggest challenges in creating an effective and durable vaccine for chlamydia pecorum, as well as other species of chlamydia? Yeah, uh, in a nutshell, the, the infection site. So chlamydia is majority a uh, mucosal infection. Mucosal vaccines are notoriously difficult to produce you look at influenza vaccines in humans they only last six months maximum the only mucosal infection vaccine that has proven widely effective is the hpv vaccine chlamydia can uh, transmit around the body the, the range of tissues and uh, presentations that chlamydia has it with pecorum but with all with trachomatis and psittacea bordis it's so varied. It can affect so many different sites and have different uh, phenotypic traits that one vaccine to clear all chlamydia infections is highly unlikely. I think there's trials that have shown with trachomatis that the vaccine it works for ocular infections but not for urogenital infections. And who knows what it's doing to the gastrointestinal site where you have severe complex uh, immune uh, interactions between bacteria and post immune responses, it's, I, I wouldn't uh, say that there's a vaccine that's going to fix everything around the corner, if at all, but there yeah, specific vaccines to fix specific problems is more likely. I guess we could also say, and we were discussing actually this with Sam just the other day, whether it's koala, whether it's livestock. So if you create a vaccine that will stop the disease, not necessarily infection, but if it can stop that infection to develop into the full disease, I think that's also one aspect that you could um, say that the vaccine is effective. Of course, the ultimate vaccine would be, you know, like your classic vaccine, uh, MO, modus operandi, stops infection, that's it, just, you know, blocks the pathogen. But even if we achieve um, no disease, um, I, I think that's also a great achievement for veterinary vaccines. And so besides potentially protecting koala populations and helping koalas to recover, what are some other impacts that this vaccine might have in terms of public health or wildlife veterinary health? Like what will this be able to tell us about administering a vaccine in wildlife, which is a little bit more different than administering it to you know livestock? <laughs> Definitely. We're breaking new ground with this. It's, as you say, it's, it's never been done before. There's never a vac, as far as I can tell, there's not a vaccine successfully administered in wildlife. So besides all the complexities and difficulties in actually running vaccine trials, 
but getting a vaccine to a point where it's available for veterinarians and wildlife carers to be able to utilize is really difficult and that which we're trying to uh, induce new policy within the, the Australian federal governments to allow for funding of such a vaccine we can't go this we're not looking at a research project but we're also not looking at a commercially viable vaccine so this is yeah it's new territory we can't you know say that to a company you make this and you'll make so much money because you won't make any money uh and then yeah how do you get to the koalas and then how do you know which koalas have had infection had the vaccine they don't have a, a health card or anything to say that they've been vaccinated um so it's incredibly Difficult. We're trying to work our way through it. Uh, our vaccine is getting registered with the APVMA, which is the Australian Veterinary Therapeutics Administration. It's like the TGA for animals. So we're putting together an application for that to have it registered and be available for people outside of a research project. Uh, but the funding and financing for such a vaccine is still complex. And the number of doses we need is small in comparison we don't we need probably we estimate about 2,000 doses a year when you compare that to say COVID where we needed two billion doses a year it's yeah for manufacturers it's really small and surprisingly it's difficult to be able to produce small levels of vaccine it's many different problems which we're trying to work through and we have solved quite a lot we We've got, we've got a manufacturing partner that's willing to come on board and make the vaccine. We've got access to adjuvants. We've got um, plans to um, distribute this throughout wildlife hospitals. Uh, there is frameworks that have been developed to go out and vaccinate wild populations and use microchips to track which ones have been vaccinated and which ones haven't. And so, yeah, we, we are on our way. We're well, well down the track. It's been two years in the making so far and we're nearly ready to submit our application so yeah it's but yeah this is this is how you get things break new territory and get new things done you have to push people outside of their comfort zones <laughs> absolutely oh it's so exciting it's it's, it's um, seems very hopeful so I've got one last question for you too before I let you go and that is can you share some of your favorite pieces of chlamydia or koala trivia? Okay, I'll start. So, okay, did you know that chlamydia infects flamingos? <laughs> no, I did not. Oh, okay, and recently um, by our European colleagues, uh, they discovered two new species and belonging to a new genera within family chlamydiaceae. There you go. And did you know, Erin, that another new species of chlamydia was isolated from uh, crocodiles? What? No. And it's termed, <laughs> yes, and its name is chlamydia crocodili. So <laughs> it, is, it, it is remarkable. That, that is exactly what we said. There is a chlamydia for every host on every continent, wherever you want it. <laughs> you just have to look. <laughs> you just have to seek and you shall find, and you shall find a lot. Uh, I think Martina stole mine. I was going to say something along the same lines. Uh, I could add that th there are some theories that chlamydia is responsible for the mitochondria in uh, multicellular organisms. 
Ooh. There's some links there. There's also some evolutionary biologists that say that that's fooey, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Yulochnik and Dr. Phillips, for chatting with me today and for answering all of my many, many chlamydia questions. If you would like to learn more about any of the topics we touched on today, check out this episode's post on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com, where I'll link to a few papers. Also on our website are the sources for all of our episodes, transcripts, quarantini and placeborita recipes, our bookshop.org affiliate account, Goodreads list, links to music by Bloodmobile, links to merch and Patreon, and so much more. Listen, follow, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can listen to new episodes one week early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Thanks again to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this and all of our episodes. And thank you to you, listeners. I hope you liked learning so much more about chlamydia than you probably ever thought you would. And a special thank you, as always, to our wonderful, generous patrons. We appreciate you so much. We have got a brand new episode on a brand new topic coming out next week. So until then, keep washing those hands.